for anybody who has read uh, Neil Bascom's The Perfect Mile, it is probably the quintessential um, account of that <laughs> Patrick feat. Is, Patrick, is, Patrick is currently holding up the book. Because as, I wanted as, to make sure I quoted it correctly. As, as if you can see it. <laughs> it's like reading Rainbow. I'm like, so, um, yeah, yeah, except it's a podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. My name is George Darden. And I'm Patrick Ollinger. Uh, We are endurance athletes and coaches here in the Atlanta area, and we appreciate you joining us here for this episode. Uh, This is News and Research Week, so that's what we're going to be focusing on this week. Before we get to all that, though, Patrick, did you listen to our interview with Josh Glass? I did, and uh, I, I enjoyed it as much the second time as the first time we were actually having the conversation. <laughs> right on. Yeah, I, I, I did think it was funny. Listen, there was a we, we joked as it was happening that we were we were watching the World Indoor Championships and we were watching Aries Merritt from Marietta, Georgia, uh, trying to, to, to win the hurdles there, and that didn't necessarily make for good podcast listening. <laughs> no, no. Sometimes we forget that you can't see us, but I... I think it works out well podcasting in general because I mean I've I've always been told I have the face for radio so I enjoy right on, it right on for sure well Josh Glass definitely has a face for radio <laughs> so uh, very good well that's uh, our way of testing to see if he's listening or not that's right well he said he wanted to be a sponsor so we'll see I meant to actually go back and and like run some numbers since since he was talking about why don't you have Michael Jackson or Star Wars as your theme music I was like well if you want to be our sponsor. Maybe you can pay for some of the royalties on that music, uh-huh. and I meant to go back and find out how much that would actually cost. I just didn't have the opportunity to do this week since I was out of town for most of the week. So anyway, maybe that'll be at out Disney. Next time. So no, that's right, Star that's Wars right. related in some degree. Well, absolutely, very much. Wearing my uh, my Star Wars shirts and and taking pictures of my sons on speeders with lightsabers and all that sort of thing. So anyway, uh, but what stood out to you about the interview? Uh, I would say one of the big things for me is, and I don't know if we've necessarily verbalized this on the podcast yet, but. One thing we like to do is you and I love talking about track and field. We love talking about professional track meets. We love talking about NCAA results. And maybe if you're new to to long-distance running or if you're new to triathlons, you may be used to following baseball, football, etc., but you're not used to following track or cycling the same way you would for some of the primary sports. That's one thing we enjoy about this podcast is sharing some of the news and the research out there so that you can follow along, so you can follow Shailene Flanagan at the Boston Marathon and know what a big deal it is, or know what a big deal it is for Meb Kofleski to win the 2014 Boston Marathon. Yeah. And that's really part of uh, the goal of this podcast. And, you know, Josh is someone who, I mean, he's right there in the thick of it, so it's always fascinating to hear his stories about the players involved and the characters involved in track and field. For sure. Yeah, I agree. And I think, too, that, and, and you know, Pete Ray, when we interviewed him, touched on this, and I very much believe this, and, and I found this over the course of the past several years of being a fan of professional cycling and, and professional triathlon and professional running, is that unlike other sports, um, you know, you don't, you, you can watch a professional runner or you can read a professional runner's book and that can help you with your own running. Right. Or, or you, you can see what it is that professional cyclists do, uh, either in training or even in racing, and that will make you a better cyclist. Um, you, know, you don't get that from watching other sports. Right. Um, I, mean, I can't learn about playing basketball from Shaq because I can't right. drop the ball in the basket by standing on my right. tiptoes. Right, right. And, and, and if, you, if you watch a professional basketball game, 
it's not necessarily going to make you a better basketball player. You can't then go to you know your, your rec league at the LA Fitness and, and suddenly be a better basketball player. Um, whereas there are literally things that triathletes do that if you watch the coverage or read the coverage of triathlons, you can do those things in your very next triathlon and it will make you a better triathlete. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so, so I, I, I always appreciate that aspect of being a fan of those sports as well. Um, one of the things that stood out to me that I appreciate and something that we're going to touch on a little bit this week, and then we'll talk about a lot more with our podcast next week. Is is he talked about having a plan? Yes. Um, and and I always have said that that having a plan is the difference between training and exercising. <laughs> right. Or, <laughs> or running and jogging. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That 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 speed has nothing to do with those things. Um, that that rather the difference is is do you have a plan and are you moving in a particular direction? Are you progressing? Are you tr- attempting to make progress? Um, and and I think that that. Uh, particularly when he referenced it when we were talking about the stretching thing, um, mm-hmm. that that um, and I, I think Pete would probably agree with him on that. I haven't followed up with Pete to ask him, but but yeah, okay. Um, stretching not necessarily bad. Just have a plan related to it. Don't just hey, now we're gonna stretch a little bit, you know? Right. Um, and and do it at certain times and with certain things in mind and do certain movements and and with certain specific goals. And that's a good thing. Um, and it's part of an overall training program, an overall well planned program. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I appreciated that as well. Um, but yeah, I thought it was great, um, and uh, we've gotten some good fat feedback from some folks. We appreciate you listening to it, and uh, by all means, let us know who it is you want us to interview next. So we have a few people that we uh, sort of have lined up, but if there's somebody you want us to reach out to, uh, let us know. So um, all right, but this week, this week's podcast, talking about research and news, of course. Uh, Patrick, tell us about your research. Sure. So my research, it's a, it's an oldie but a goodie. It kind of gets back to the basics. <laughs> Um, it was originally published in the Journal of Medical Sports in February of 2007. Um, and it, what, ha- what the study did is a group of researchers looked at high-intensity training in moderately trained individuals. And one thing you have said over and over again is that you always want to look at studies that study moderately trained or already trained runners because mm-hmm. someone who's new to running or new to triathlons, anything will work. Just about anything will, will show mm-hmm. improvement. Mm-hmm. Um, and the aim of the study was to compare the effects of two high-intensity training intervals, or training interval programs on VO2 max, uh, VVO2 max, which is the length of time you can run at your VO2 max. Your velocity of VO2 max. Correct. And then your lactate threshold. Um, So for those of you who don't know, like I said, there are individual differences in how... And how much VO2 max you have. Some people have a VO2 max of 70, some 50, and that's kind of your peak oxygen you can consume and use at once. And then there are also individual differences in how long your body can sustain that VO2 max. That's the VVO2 max. Mm-hmm. And so they took some moderately trained runners and they divided them up into three groups. The first two groups performed uh, variations of high-intensity training intervals along with some 60-minute easy runs. So the first group did, uh, let's see, some training or some um, intervals at longer interval uh, repetitions. They did four to six minute intervals at roughly like 5K, 10K pace. Mm -hmm. And then the second group did essentially 200 meter repeats along with the easy runs. Mm -hmm. And then the third group, of course. Uh, uh, The 200 meter repeats were like better than mile pace. Correct. They were fast, yeah. They were blazing. Yeah. And then the third group only did recovery runs. And what the researchers found was the, the folks who did the the interval training, the groups one and two, there were significant increases in their VO2 max, their VVO2 max um, in particular, and then some significant increase in lactate threshold only for the group that did the longer intervals. Mm -hmm. And then for the control group, the the group that only did easy runs, 
they did not find significant improvements in any of the three. So the real takeaway is, or the reason I included this study is, I know I get a lot of questions from people who are new to marathons or or triathlons. They may say, well, if a marathon is 26 miles, why are we doing four by one mile repeats? That's only four miles of training. And the reason is what you're trying to do is stimulate a physiological response within your body so that you can then use that greater or enhanced physiological capabilities when you come to that 26.2 mile race or that long Ironman, half Ironman. So it really just kind of confirms the knowledge that coaches have known for decades, but it's still nice when the science kind of backs up common knowledge or conventional wisdom. Yeah. So what's your takeaway or what's what the thing that stood out to you in this piece well, so, of research? So the, the interesting thing about it to me too is because you can kind of, you can interpret the results in two ways. Mm-hmm. You can interpret it, the people who ran hard and easy versus the people that only ran easy. Correct. And they found that, that the people who ran hard and easy ended up being being fitter and better able to run fast than the people who ran only easy. Right. Okay, so 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 that might have been kind of like, okay, well, yeah, we got that. That's not a big surprise. And then, then the second way you can look at it is to say, okay, what about the differences between the two groups that ran hard? Right. One of them, like you said, ran those 30-second repeats, those, those 200, you know, super fast repeats. So basically did sprints with really long rests, as a matter of fact. Right. They said they, they rested like three or four times as much. Um, and then the other group did like four to six minute repeats at 5K pace, right? And so, so, so they're running longer, more sustained stuff. And they found that, that it was that, that second group, that one that was actually doing the, the more sustained running at VO2 pace that ended up actually um, uh, boosting their VO2 more. Um, I think that the, there's a couple of takeaways from that. One is that the specificity, if you will, that, right. that they, they were, their, their VO2 was boosted when they ran at VO2 pace. Yeah, I mean that, that 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 makes sense. Those workouts are a lot harder, <laughs> right? But 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 not a big surprise. Um, and the other thing too that I think is interesting is thinking about they mentioned moderately trained, mm-hmm. and they didn't really say what moderately trained was. Um, but it seems to suggest these are probably people who have done some hard running before. Um, and so, given that, it suggests that that people who have done hard running before would benefit more from doing these longer, sustained, very difficult repeats mm-hmm. of, you know, uh, 1,200, you know, 800, 1,200 meters. Um, yeah, and I would say it just kind of backs up that, that like that principle that coaches have kind of known for a while, yeah. and that's that what, what runners or triathletes want is to spend an extended period of time at that VO2 max training or that, at that VO2 training pace, that 5K, 10K pace. Yeah. That obviously isn't done through a 5K race. That's done through intervals at, at 5k pace that way you can have kind of an extended period yeah. without kind of blowing out your system like a 5k race would yeah yeah and the 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 intervals for that group added up to more than 5k so they're running more than 5k at 5k pace which is you know not a whole lot more um but yeah i mean that that, that, that makes for hard workouts but but they make for very beneficial ones as it turns out at least according to this study so yeah and go. And then last but not least, I know one question, too, I get from folks maybe who may come from like a CrossFit or maybe like a, mm-hmm. more of a gym workout um, background is they think interval training is anaerobic training. Mm-hmm. But this kind of shows that, no, for long distance running, a lot of times or, you know, any kind of endurance sport, interval training is really aerobic work. It's that VO2 max. Um, the, the magic isn't really that it's called high intensity training. It's simply that the volume, repetition, and recovery are set up in a way that kind of touches on your VO2 max and really builds that. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. The fact that the thing that's the thing that's 
boosting your VO2 max and your velocity at VO2 max the most is not running as hard as you possibly can. It's running hard. Right. But not as hard as you possibly can. Whereas, yeah, CrossFitters and a lot of, like, CrossFit endurance stuff, it's like, it says, do this as hard as you possibly can. Right. And and you keep on doing as hard as you possibly can until you can't do it anymore. And that's not that's not the best way to go about it. Right. Yeah. To, to oversimplify it, I know in my own mind, I like to say, in training, I'm going to get as much time on my feet at, at certain paces as possible mm-hmm. in this 12-week stretch. Mm-hmm. That's an oversimplification, but it's kind of a nice... Uh, motto in my mind when it's late at night and I'm wondering why I'm doing a workout or why I'm on a run. <laughs> right on, right on. Very good. All right, so how about you? So for me, my my, I kind of want to talk about two different pieces of research, but they but they complement one another and they've both popped onto my radar over the course of the past couple of weeks, and I thought I'd mention them. And and they certainly have um, ramifications for endurance athletes, even though they weren't studies on endurance athletes. Um, uh, they, in particular, it was two different meta-analyses, and as we've said so many times, meta-analyses are studies that look at all the studies, um, and they, they try to summarize what all the big studies say. Um, and both of these meta-analyses uh, looked at the link between depression and diet. Um, the first one um, was in July of last year. It was done by a Chinese team. Um, it was called Dietary Patterns and Depression Risk, a meta-analysis. It was in a journal called Psychiatry Research. Um, they took 21 different studies from 10 different countries and, and put them all together. Now, 21 studies doesn't sound like a lot, but dietary studies tend to have massive numbers. And so we're right. talking about thousands, if not millions, of different participants um, that, that, that they were actually looking at here. Um, and across 10 different countries, that's the yeah. part that stood out to me because yeah. different countries have can have vastly different diets. Yeah, no, absolutely. And they do have vastly different diets. And so, um, so what this Chinese team ultimately... Uh, uh, concluded was this, uh, quote, a dietary pattern characterized by high intakes of fruit, vegetables, whole grain, fish, olive oil, low fat dairy, and antioxidants, and low intakes of animal foods was apparently associated with a decreased risk of depression. A dietary pattern characterized by a high consumption of red and or processed meat, refined grains, sweets, high-fat dairy products, butter, potatoes, and high-fat gravy, and low intakes of fruits and vegetables is associated with an increased risk of depression. The results of this meta-analysis suggest that healthy pattern may decrease the risk of depression, whereas Western-style diets may increase the risk of depression. Uh, Unquote. So, yeah, kind of a, a, a pretty stark and, and fairly shocking thing that, that, you know, we tend to think about diet as, as something that influences our performance and influences our physicality, but not necessarily something that influences our mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this meta-analysis drew a very direct line between uh, the way that we, our brain works uh, in terms of depression and the food that we eat. Um, you know, intakes of fruit, vegetable, whole grain, fish, olive oil, low-fat dairy, um, that's going to make you a happier person uh, and less uh, less likely to potentially suffer depression. Um, and then the things that are foods that a lot of us really like to eat. <laughs> Red processed meats, refined grains, sweets, high-fat dairy products, butter, potatoes, and high-fat gravy, and low intakes of fruits and vegetables, uh, you're more likely to, to suffer the effects of depression. Um, so, yeah, I was obviously very struck by that. Um, what do you think? I was, yeah, that's... Um... So my first reaction is, so I don't know, I don't really have, this is anecdotal evidence, but for me, happiness almost equals energy. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is on days where I'm sluggish, I'm not feeling well, I don't want to get out of bed and go for a run. Those are the days when, you know, not as happy, not as joyful as the days where I'm mm-hmm. popping up out of bed, 
singing in the morning and, you know, skipping my way to the run. Yeah. Um, and to me, I, I think that's where this connection to diet really comes into play. I know there are certain foods, certain drinks, mm-hmm. certain sugary drinks especially, where if I drink it, it may feel good for 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. There's a little sugar rush. Mm-hmm. But then afterwards, I feel so sluggish mm-hmm. and so mentally drained mm-hmm. and, and slow. Like my processing speed mentally is so yeah. slow. That it really kind of dampens my mood and kind of casts a cloud on how I feel. That that may be a bit... I know this is all anecdotal, but to me it makes sense because, like I said, to me, energy equals happiness. Yeah. And see, in the way that you're describing it, and, and, and I, I think that's interesting, the way that you're describing it, you're saying that, that like you eat this stuff and it changes the way you feel physically, and that in turn influences how you feel mentally. Yes. And, and essentially what, what this study is arguing is that, it's, is that it's kind of the opposite, or at least you don't need to use the body as a way station. Right. That, that it's not about it making you feel built bad physically, and that in turn affects you mentally, but rather it just skips the physical part entirely. That, that eating right. food that's not good for you, um, or these specific foods actually, um, do, will directly influence your mental state. That's um, will, will lead directly to depressive symptoms. Um, yeah, and so so that's obviously going to going to then redound physically, and then the physical will will cycle back to the mental, and just you know, mm-hmm. one after the other, and after the other, and da da da. da. So so yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that is kind of interesting. It's one of those things too. Like when I read this at first, I was like, wow, that's really kind of mind blowing. And then you take a step back, and you're like, well, no. If you really think about it, it kind of makes perfect sense. I mean, the brain controls your entire body, right? And it's working twenty four seven, and it has to run on fuel. Mm-hmm. And so it makes well, mine sense. works about half the day. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but but I mean, it, it makes sense though that, that if 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 you're if you're eating good fuel, mm-hmm. your brain is going to work better. Yeah, and that doesn't just influence the way your brain works better when you're asking your body to do something physical, but it also influences things like depression, right. and mood, and stuff like that. So your your brain is going to be better able to run efficiently and strongly and powerfully. Um, not bogged down by things like depression um, if you, in fact, give it high-quality fuel. Mm-hmm. So it kind of makes sense in that regard, right? right absolutely. But, but, but I just think that we don't tend to think about, um, well, the food that we eat and the way it's going to affect our brain. We tend to think about the food that we eat and the way it's going to affect our body, or our physical, our body. Um, but, in fact, you can have some, some psychiatric uh, issues as well. Now, I mentioned there's a second study here, and the second study is is, is important to kind of consider alongside this one, um, because I, I can imagine some of you might be thinking the same thing I thought, is that, that this is sort of a chicken and egg type situation, and it's like, oh, well, you know, how do you know that, that this isn't a bunch of depressed people who are feeling depressed and then eating a lot of comfort food, right? right? How do you know that the food is actually leading to the depressive symptoms as opposed to depressive symptoms leading to a whole bunch of comfort eating that then means that they're eating butter, potatoes, high-fat gravy, processed meats, all those sorts of things that tend to lead to depression. Um, so fortunately, there was a study that came out just a couple months ago. Um, there was a study that came out in January 2018. It was called Diet Quality and Depression Risk, a Systematic Review and Dose Response Meta-Analysis of Prospective Studies. It's a mouthful. Uh, it was in the Journal of Affective Disorders, um, and it was done by this European team. There's a couple of Spanish people. There was a person from Norway on that team. And like I said, it just came out in January this year. Um, they looked at 24 different studies. It was also a meta-analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, lots of participants, more than about 2 million participants in this study. If you, if you could pull together all the participants from the 24 studies, they're looking at 2 million different people 
and their diets and that sort of thing. Uh, and in order to qualify for a study in this meta-analysis, they said, okay, we have to, the study has to set up, be set up in such a way that they're looking at diet and then over time they're looking to see whether depression develops, not, hey, are the people depressed and what is their diet? Right. Um, and so, so in order to try and create that causal link, that cause and effect um, situation. Um, and they concluded ultimately, quote, there is evidence that a higher quality di- diet is associated with a lower risk for the onset of depressive symptoms. Um, and so that kind of solves that, or at least addresses that, that chicken and egg question. It's not that depressed people are eating poorly. It's that people who are eating poorly have higher rates of depression. Um, yeah, if you needed something to, you know, here on the weekend. To really boost me up, man. <laughs> I need a glass of water. <laughs> well, well, no, I wasn't thinking to boost you up. I was thinking, you know, something to inspire you to eat more, you know, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, fish, olive oils, low-fat dairy, uh, and, and, and all that sort of thing. So, yeah. So, speaking of which, how's your uh, New Year's resolution going not to eat while standing up? Oh, thanks, buddy. I appreciate you bringing that up. Uh, had, I mean, I, I, thought I, was, I thought I was coming up with, like, a really good, simple, like, way to go about um, monitoring and being more mindful of what I eat. I had no idea how often I ate standing up. Yeah. I had no idea. Like, it happens constantly. I also didn't realize how much gray area there was going to be in there. Like, if I'm sitting at the table chewing something, can I stand up and then walk across the room because my sons, you know, want me to put together a Lego with them? Um, is that allowed? Um, so, yeah, those sorts of those sorts of gray areas and, and, and the fact that it was so much more prevalent than I realized, you know, can I drink while standing up? Right. You know, is that, is that, I mean, uh, uh, what if it's a non-calorie drink? Is that, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, anyway, I'm still trying to stick to it, man. Uh, I can't remember the statistics, but it's the vast majority of people by by the time they get to March have, have abandoned their New Year's resolutions. And I have not yet abandoned mine. Um, but, but, yeah, it's been a struggle, man. Working hard. And I actually bring that up because, to me, that does tie into this food and these food and depression studies because, I mean, as we've talked about before... Sometimes in, our end goal is, is not something we can set as a goal. So, for example, you can't just say, I want to run faster. Mm-hmm. You have to set process goals that will lead yeah. you to run faster, like doing interval training in mm-hmm. VO2 max, like mm-hmm. doing the lactate mm-hmm. thresholds. If you, know, you can't make a goal to be happy, I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist, but you, mm-hmm. I, I know enough to know you can't just say, my goal is to be happy. Mm-hmm. But you can say, okay, well, what are things I can, what are some kind of passive or um, indirect ways I can help myself yeah. or create a path to being happier. Yeah. And for you, for your eating habits, you you did the same with, with eating. You said, I can't tell myself, don't drink Coca-Cola, for example, but you can say, I won't eat standing up. Right. Or, you know, I'll right. change this one habit, and then the domino effect will kind of create. Still working on it, man. Uh-huh. <laughs> so. But that's almost a sign of a good goal, though, right? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, if it, if it was super easy, I'd be like, yeah, done, knocked it out. Right. And it's March. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's definitely something that needs work. Um, um, and I think that it's something that I'm, I'm, I'm actually strangely becoming more mindful and adhering to it more now because I'm actually, because, you know, in January I was, I was walking around in a boot and, and wasn't right. really doing any exercise or anything. Whereas now I'm getting back to a place where I'm, I'm starting to do more exercise and I'm, I'm starting to be more mindful and, and wanting to be fitter and wanting to be healthier and all that sort of thing. Um, as it happens, my state of mind will probably improve, um, which is which is good. Um, all right, let's talk about some news. Um, uh, is your piece of news first? One of mine. Yeah, so okay. mine's first. It's happy news. So all right, we'll, we'll go from. Well, that's good since the the other two pieces of news we have are, are not a little <laughs> less happy. Um, 
So this week, earlier this week, Olympic great and Boston Marathon, 2014 Boston Marathon winner Meb Kofleski endorsed the city of Atlanta and its bid for the 2020 uh, Olympic Marathon Trials. Um, as you know, most of folks listening to this podcast are Atlanta natives or are living in the Atlanta area, um, and you and I are... But if you're not, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, you and I are you know, distance coaches here in the Atlanta area, kind of grew up in the Atlanta area, mm-hmm. and to me it's... It's so exciting because this is a city that has long been a very active city in a way that it doesn't always get credit for because our kind of more traditional sports teams don't always win. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can really see the Atlanta Track Club has really come together the last 15 years, really the last five years specifically. They've signed a deal with Mizuno and they're really helped building up a giant um, running culture and endurance community here in the city of Atlanta, and I think that's fantastic, and this just kind of adds kind of um, gravy on top, because the more we can kind of have, you know, big events, big running events in Atlanta, like the, possibly the Olympic marathon trials, like the Peachtree Road Race, like the Publix Half Marathon and Marathon, Mm -hmm. the more we can kind of encourage people to get out there and continue running. Mm -hmm. Um, Just for some background, the four cities in contention are Atlanta, Austin, Chattanooga, and Orlando. Uh, I don't know much about the running community or the endurance community in Orlando, but I know Austin and Chattanooga are two kind of world-class cities in terms of having a lot of people who do triathlons, marathons, Mm -hmm. etc. So that's pretty exciting. Um, now Atlanta might be the hilliest course of those four. I, Chattanooga's got to be up there. Hilly. And then, then Austin has these really short, steep hills. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. I, like I said, I'm excited. Uh, but Meb came out. He he gave a, a quick endorsement. I think he was wearing an Atlanta Track Club. He was um, shirt. Uh, so I I love it. Mizuno's North American headquarters are here in Norcross, Georgia, right outside of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So that that's pretty interesting. It all kind of ties into us building the community here in Atlanta. And to me, it's exciting. Oh, for sure. Yeah. No, and, and we shared this story and we shared another story we're going to talk about here in just a minute on our Facebook page. And, and actually, I want to say of all the various things we've shared over the course of the past two or three years on our Facebook page, this got more attention yes. um, than, than, than anything else. I think that's what the Facebook metrics actually told us. But um, but yeah, it's, um, you know, you, you mentioned the Atlanta Track Club. A few years ago, the Atlanta Track Club hired a new director. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and their old director had been there for a long time. And the old director grew the Atlanta Track Club into this massive organization that's now the second largest running club in the United States behind the New York Roadrunners. Um, and, and, and that is a, sorry to cut you off, that is a huge accomplishment oh, considering yeah. we don't have a Chicago Marathon, a New York City Marathon, or a Boston Marathon. Right. Yeah, no, the reason why the New York Roadrunners are that big is because people want to get into the, the, the New York City Marathon. Yeah, um, and so... so um, yeah, it's incredible. Um, and then when the, the new director of the Atlanta Track Club, a guy named Rich Kana, took over mm-hmm. a few years ago, he kind of said, all right, we have all of these participants, we have all these people, now let's try and create some events. Uh, and so he kind of took to more of a top-down approach. Right. Uh, like he said, okay, the bottom-up is completed, now let's kind of take a top-down approach. Um, and, and so he made the... the um, the Peachtree Road Race for the past couple of years has been more, it's been the USA 10K Road Championship Race mm-hmm. um, and, and a few other things like that. Um, and so this is kind of part of, of that. Um, he's added an elite team um, and he's trying to, to have more Atlanta Track Club jerseys showing up at, at you know elite track meets, mm-hmm. uh, racing against people from Zap Fitness and stuff like that. Um, and so I think it's great. Um, and this is kind of 
part and parcel of that overall effort. Um, I would love to see it. I think it'd be great, um, you know, to be able to go out on the course and cheer for the future Olympians and to see people make the Olympic team. Yeah, sign um, me up. I know, right? Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, I would love to see it. I would love to see it. So, and, yeah. and to build on to one of your points, it's interesting because Atlanta, part of the reason Atlanta had such a huge uh, following of people, such a huge number of people in the track club is because this is a great city for parks and weather, yeah. right? There aren't many months oh, of the yeah. year where you really can't run outside. This is not northern Indiana where it's sub-zero for weeks on end. Yeah. Um, it's, not, it's not Boulder. Uh, right. Yeah, no, I, I've always said, I, I feel like Atlanta is is one of the great American cities to run in um, because tw- 365 days a year you can go outside. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some of those days are going to be hot, and so you need to go outside in the morning or in the evening, but, but 365 days a year you can go outside. Um, and it's hilly, which... I don't care what you say. Hills are good for runners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and Just I, not good I, for PRs. Yeah. I do care what you say, actually, but the research bears <laughs> out that, that, that hills are good for runners. Um, and Atlanta, much more than, than any other cities, you can be running down the busy parts of Atlanta, and you can literally take one turn, and you're in Inman Park, yeah. or you're in Grant Park, um, or you're in Morningside, or something like that. You're in these neighborhoods. Um, that are quiet and 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 you can run. Uh, you know, I went to Georgia Tech as an undergrad, and everybody's like, "Where do you run? Do you run downtown?" And I'm, I'm like, "Well, not downtown. We run through Midtown a lot, and and actually, we're constantly running in neighborhoods. Right. Um, I don't have to disrupt my run stopping for stoplights all the time. Um, Atlanta's a great city to run in. Yeah, I mean, and we have parks in town like Piedmont Park, Grant Park. Mm-hmm. We also have lots of parks out in the burbs too: mm-hmm. Stone Mountain Park, Yellow River Park, Cochran mm-hmm. Shoals, Kennesaw mm-hmm. Mountain. Uh, I believe Gwent County even won an award for having such a great park system oh, yeah. way back in the day. Oh, yeah. So, I, I mean, I feel very fortunate. And yet what's interesting is you actually see it in the bigger sports, too. Mm-hmm. Atlanta has long been known as the city where if the team isn't winning, mm-hmm. fans don't show up or, or sporting events don't don't rate. Because, quite honestly, if the team's losing, we turn it off and we go outside. <laughs> yeah. So, and the other two cities that do that are San Francisco and Miami. Hmm. Um, just to give you an idea of how weather and, and terrain kind of play into that. That's interesting, too. I think Atlanta, too, you know, Atlanta continually over the course of the past two decades has ranked at the top or near the top of, of the city that young college graduates are moving to. Yes. Um, and so a lot of people from, or probably people who live in Atlanta are not from Atlanta. Mm-hmm. <coughs> um, and because of that, I think that, that that stymies a little bit of the, okay, we're a Falcons fan. Because people come from Chicago, so they're a Bears fan, right? Or they come from Buffalo, so they're a Bills fan, you know, or something like that. Um, and so, uh, you know, they come from Boston, so they're a Patriots fan. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> stuff, stuff that boggles the mind of those of us who are actually from Atlanta or fans of Atlanta sports teams. But, um, but, but, um, you know, I heard a sports commentator one time saying that Atlanta is a great city for sports. Yes, um, it's not a great city for the home team. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's a bad sports town. It's actually a really good sports town. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I think in terms of participation numbers, um, in terms of what people do, I think Atlanta's a great place. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's great for our sport. Um, and this would be a good thing if, if we ended up getting the 2020 Olympic trial. So, um, seeing the other ones that are on the list, I mean, we don't have the ins and outs of, of you know, what the, what the bids look like. I feel good. Yeah. I feel good. Which one scares you the most in terms of if you think they could nab it outside of Atlanta? You know, Chattanooga has been like on a tear. 
They they hosted the the seventy point three Ironman World Championships last year. They hosted the uh, the cycling. Um, no, they didn't. That was Richmond. Uh, they hosted uh, uh, something having to do with cycling, like fairly recently. Um, and and uh, they've been doing great. So so, but it's Chattanooga though. Chattanooga is like like Atlanta's little brother. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> Where are people going to stay? <laughs> yeah. It's yeah, so, so I don't know. So we'll see. But um um. And then, yeah, Orlando, yeah, I just can't imagine that, but I don't know, we'll see, we'll see. So, so yeah, um, I mean, I just got back from Orlando, so so I'm not totally <laughs> dissonant, but, you know, uh, but we'll see, we'll see. Um, all right, so speaking about things that we shared on our Facebook page, the uh, the other thing we shared on our Facebook page uh, a couple weeks ago was about the death of uh, Dr. Dave Martin, uh, mm-hmm. known affectionately as Dr. Dave. Um, uh, he's somebody that... that uh, has heavily influenced me personally and professionally and athletically. Um, and I think a lot of people that we talk to would say the same thing. Uh, Josh Glass would say the same thing. Pete Ray would say the same thing. Um, uh, for people who are my age, um, he was sort of a, a guru or almost like a Yoda type figure to, to a lot of us in the Atlanta area here. Um, Dave Martin, Dr. Dave Martin was a professor at Georgia State. He got his degrees from, um, I know he went to Wisconsin as an undergrad, um, and I think that's where he got ended up getting his, his, his degree, his PhD as well. Uh, but he was an exercise physiologist, um, and he ultimately wrote over 100 papers. He wrote five different books. Um, he was three times recognized as a Distinguished Professor Award um, at GSU, uh, Georgia State. Uh, he was ultimately named a Regents Professor Emeritus. Um, he was a fellow of the American College of Sports Medicine, uh, and he's a 2006 recipient of the USATF's uh, Geigengack Award for, quote, outstanding contribution to the success of USA track and field, uh, unquote. Um, he did all sorts of research into specifically into running. Um, he was an undergrad runner, and he was on a couple of world cross teams, as a matter of fact. Um, and so, so he applied a lot of different things around running. Well, um, but he had more of an effect than just that. He had this, you know, world-renowned exercise physiology lab in the Kell Building at, at Georgia State. Um, but um, he also was pivotal in hosting the first international women's marathon, uh, which was held in Atlanta. Uh, in 1978, it was sponsored by the cosmetics manufacturer Avon. Um, That's unbelievable. Yeah, and it's and it's actually an interesting um, look into sort of where women's marathoning was as recently as 40 years ago, um, only in 1978. Um, he. Uh, basically brought this sponsor on board and they set up a, a whole host of or a whole series of different women's international marathons called the Avon International Series or something like that um, around the world. Um, and he had to maintain all the records for it and he had to try and maintain all the statistics for who the best women marathoners in the world were so that they could be invited to the Avon marathons because a lot of their uh, marathons, a lot of women's marathons in the 1970s were not ratified or not official or women would jump in the races and and, and their results wouldn't be printed or something else right, like that. because they weren't allowed. Yeah, and that's right. only 40 years ago, right? Um, and so based on a lot of the work he did with that, he like went to the different countries and was commentator for it and all those different places. He had actually... He had a particular interest in promoting women's marathoning because in the early 1970s when he was first starting out, um, at, a, at some road races, a few women came up to him and asked him questions because they knew he was an exercise physiologist about their menstrual cycles. And so his first big research focus was in uh, runners' menstrual cycles. Um, and, and he found doing that research that women were strong and tough and perfectly capable of accomplishing marathon distance just like men were, even though that was contrary to some of the prevailing beliefs at the time. Um, Which so it's anyway. amazing to think that that was the 70s. Yeah, 40 years ago. 
<laughs> right? I mean, wow. Okay. I, mean, no, I, I don't even know how to comment on that. Yeah, like, no, I agree with you. But I mean, but you can to appreciate. To me, that's like finding that gravity exists four yeah, years ago. Right? I mean, it's, yeah, but, but you can appreciate how quickly things can change, though. I mean, right. look, look, look at the way that the society has changed its mind on, on uh, gay marriage over the course of the last 10 years. Right. Look at the way that society has changed its mind on marijuana over the course of the past 10 years. Right. I mean, you can see how quickly public mindsets can change, right? Right. Um, and so in the 1970s, people were just, oh, yeah, women can't do marathons. Still in the 1970s. And it was because of his research and a lot of his advocacy on their behalf uh, that women ultimately were, were uh, respected. Um, he wrote a report, uh, a scientific report, on all those Avon International Marathons, which was cited as being pivotal um, in a women's marathon being added to the World Championships in 1983. And then, of course, the Women's Olympic Marathon being added to the Olympic program in Los Angeles in 1984. Um, before 1984, women only ran uh, an 800. That was their longest race in the Olympics. Um, and then mm-hmm. they, he was able, thanks to his work, able to get an, a marathon on the Olympic program in 1984, um, which was then won by, by Joe Minot Samuelson, one of my all-time favorite runners. Yeah. Um, starting in 1992, he used to have summits for marathoners prior to the Olympics. He would like bring all the marathoners together, and he'd say, okay, let's talk about the course. Let's talk about, about the nutrition. Let's talk about how you're going to hydrate yourself. Let's talk about the way you're going to train for it, all these sorts of things. He, he would literally bring all the team members together and all their supporting cast together and, and have these summits. Um, and probably the most famous ones um, uh, were before the 2004 Olympic Games in Athens. Um, both Dina Castor, who went on to win a bronze in the Women's Olympic Marathon, um, and Mevka Flessi, who we just talked about a minute ago, who won a silver in the 2004 Olympic uh, Marathon, uh, cited the work that he did in being a, a crucial part in, in their successes there. Um, Mevka Flessi, they were interviewed him as part of his obituary. Uh, he said, Dr. Martin was crucial to my silver medal in Athens. It was a great honor and pleasure working with such a humorous man with such an amazing mind. His great contributions to our sport should always be remembered. Um, and then, of course, they talked to Dina Castro as well. And she said, Each memory of Dave is founded in his immeasurable love of distance running and of helping runners succeed. Hosting a team clinic well before Athens, he emphasized the three H's, heat, humidity, and hills. He brought precise science to our preparation, but also team camaraderie that willed me to my goal on race day. I am forever grateful. Um, so, yeah, um, you know, this kind of guru, this Sungali, this, this guy who's super uh, influential in bringing science to training distance runners mm-hmm. um, and, and, I, and, and merging together coaches and scientists, um, which like I said, I feel like that influenced me very much personally and athletically um, and, and, and something I kind of try and do as a coach as well today. Um, just kind of one more quick thing about him here. Um, his, uh, something that he's often cited for, and I think it's unfortunate because of the name, uh, is the so-called doo-doo principle. Okay. Um, and uh, he, in describing it, he says, quote, it's not what or how much training you do, but how well you recover from the training that you do do. And if you don't recover properly, if you end up with anemia or fatigue or injuries, then you're in deep doo-doo. All right. um, he says, it's difficult for people to realize that doing nothing is doing something. There's lots going on during recovery at the cellular level. Just because you don't see the mitochondria hard at work doesn't mean that you're not accomplishing anything. Too few coaches know enough science, and too few scientists know enough coaching. A coach sees his job as always telling athletes what to do, and that telling them to rest means he isn't doing his job. Unquote. Um, and so, yeah, obviously, you know, we talk so much about recovery on this podcast. Right, it's <laughs> one of the key things, <laughs> and we, we need to start hashtagging recovery from everything that we talk about. So, so we should call it the Doo Doo Podcast. 
we might get a couple of listeners who uh, <laughs> this is all about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, oh, let's listen to this. Wait, running yeah. triathlon? What? No, not what I thought. Um, uh, but then he also said, finally, he said, "You need to be hungry, be fit, and be fresh. Only one of those has anything to do with training." Um, and so, uh, yeah, just again, somebody who who was hugely influential in the world of running at large, specifically in the world of running here in Atlanta, and and, and somebody who personally was very influential as well. So uh, he died of Parkinson's uh, about two or three weeks ago. So we will miss Dr. Dave. Uh, rest in peace. Um, Absolutely. And two two quick things. First, to me, the characters in any sport that were involved or that were there before the money was, mm-hmm. whether it be baseball players in the 40s, football players in the 50s, runners in the 70s almost now even mm-hmm. to some degree are always fascinating because they're doing it for love of the sport and they just tend to have a very mm-hmm. focused mindset on the sport itself mm-hmm. and so that to, so to me that's just kind of a key takeaway whether it's dr dave martin or bill bowerman or the man we're going to talk about a little bit later roger bannister mm-hmm. these characters are always fascinating mm-hmm. And then, to me, what's also fascinating, as you said, is how he was the first, or he was kind of one of the pioneers in merging the scientists and the coaches. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Bill Bowerman, to me, also sticks out as another one who mm-hmm. kind of said, wait a minute, why don't we merge mm-hmm. coaches? And coaches also tended to have a military background mm-hmm. throughout sports and then say, okay, now let's look at what the academics are doing here and let's see if we can mm-hmm. find consistencies in the in their, um, you know, commandments or their, their, their beliefs. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that is always fascinating. I mean, there's a reason that we always cite research every other episode. Mm-hmm. And all of our, um, you know, kind of suggestions and discussions are centered around academic research because it tends to be more um, reliable than just like anecdotal evidence. Mm-hmm. But what a fascinating person in a fascinating life. Oh, yeah. And it's amazing to see that story kind of play out in all different sports and all different arenas of life, mm-hmm. whether it be you know business, military, athletics, it, it's interesting to see how kind of the merging of, of mm-hmm. the science side and the human side kind of come together. And and that is both of those things are actually a good segue to the last person we're going to talk about here, and that's Roger Bannister. Uh, Roger Bannister, who himself was a neurologist, who himself brought science to to training, uh, but who himself did it very much for the love of the sport. So why don't you talk about that first? Sure. So as we were sitting down to record the last podcast, actually, um, we got news that Roger Bannister, a legend in the world of track and field, passed away. Um, Yeah, it was literally as we were sitting down. Um, Yeah. Like, I want to say Josh might have even mentioned to it as we were turning on the microphone. Um, And, and, okay, so I just totally interrupted you. I'm sorry, Patrick. (laughs) No, go ahead. This is a conversation. But but, but the reason why I was going to say is, is, we kind of felt bad, or at least I felt bad, this week that we didn't talk about it. Amidst all the retrospectives uh, among Roger Bannister, um, uh, we didn't talk about him last week on the podcast. And it was because he literally had died hours prior. And we needed a little bit more time to reflect and to think and to gather um, and all that sort of thing. So, so um, lest anybody think that we didn't think that was important, um, it was important. Uh, and so, of course, we want to talk about it now. Yeah, and for for those of you who who don't know, Roger Bannister was really a, a legend in the track and field and the running community because he was the first person to ever run a sub four minute mile, which he did on May sixth, nineteen fifty four. It was an iconic moment in sports history. For anybody who has read uh, Neil Bascom's The Perfect Mile, it is probably the quintessential um, <laughs> account of that. Patrick, feat. Is, Patrick is Patrick is currently holding up the book. Because as, I wanted as, to make sure I quoted it correctly. As, as, as if you can see it. 
It's like reading Rainbow. I'm like, <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah. Except it's a podcast version. Yeah, exactly. Right, um, so, anyways, uh, but it is when you when you go back and you read some of the newspaper clippings from the early '50s and after the war. It's amazing how many people, kind of like you were, you touched on with Doctor Dave Martin, how many people thought it was physically impossible. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's it's amazing how and. Roger Bannister himself was actually doing a lot of studies kind of on the side where he was trying to figure out if he could indeed do it. Mm-hmm. Um, he obviously didn't study himself by running the full mile. He would try to do a little test here and there to see if his body, how long his body could hold a certain pace, etc. Yeah, he, he, and he was a medical student. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I believe he broke it at the age of 25. Is either like 24, 25, um, while he was a med student. Um, and what really makes this just to get back to the moment itself, you know, now we have high school athletes that can run sub four minutes, but even though they can repeat that feat, that moment can't be repeated. You know, um, we can, we can land on the moon again, but it's not quite the same as it was that first time. Um, he was an iconic figure who was named sports illustrated sportsman of the year. The first one in the magazine's history, which is pretty cool because you would think it would have been a more like traditional, like baseball player, et cetera. Um, so he is somebody who kind of has been loved in the running community. He retired as a runner at the age of 25. Right. Um, he, he, requir- he retired a year later. Yeah, literally. A li- <laughs> talk about a mic drop, right? Um, <laughs> and, you know, he... I, I, There's so many th- things that kind of come out with Bannister's career. So many things to reflect on. The, the first thing we can kind of touch on is, in many ways, he was the last amateur, mm-hmm. Right. So you talked before about relating to professional athletes. Um, you know, most of us are never going to have a chance to simply be an athlete, right? Like that's never going to be our one goal when we wake up in the morning. Most of us are getting in runs before we go to work, getting in bike rides on the weekends. Um, you know, most of us are students and athletes, professionals and athletes. You know, you are a professional, an athlete, and a parent, you know, <laughs> So, to me, Roger Bannister was always the most relatable of all the great athletes that we know. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, he was somebody that, when I read The Perfect Mile, and I was reading about all the different characters involved who were kind of gunning for that sub-four-minute mile, he was the one I found myself kind of rooting for the most because he was doing it while being a med student. Mm-hmm. He was literally training during his lunch break. Yeah. You know, one hour a day, five days a week. 30 minutes a day. Yeah, most of his workouts were about 30 minutes long. Right. Yeah. So, and and to me, it's just such a fascinating snapshot in history. Mm -hmm. It was after the war. So in the 40s, you know, even like Major League Baseball players stopped what they were doing and went to war. Right. Then there was kind of, uh, the 50s was kind of, the amateurs were starting to break some barriers, like the four-minute mile, as they had a chance to kind of refocus their energies on you know, disposable income and entertainment, which that's what sports are to some degree, or entertainment. Mm. But then in the 60s, with the proliferation of television and the subsequent explosion of athletics and professional athletics and branded athletics, you know, sports heroes became folks who dedicated their young lives to almost nothing outside of their sport. Mm. So to me, he they always... professionals. Right. Yeah. You know, so to me, it's just so fascinating how he represents that, that snapshot in time when there is this kind of ideal of not only going to be a med student, but then on the side you're going to run four laps around a track at an absolutely blistering pace. Right, right. Yeah, no, he... So so I'm, I'm glad you brought up the last amateur thing. You know, in, in talking about it, we were looking... I, I have in my notes here, last amateur. 
um, I also have or first pro um, because I, I do think that that he often is held up as kind of this um, this uh, picture of simplicity in a bygone era and that sort of thing and he actually over the course of his medical career mm-hmm. um, you know because he the reason why he quit running in 1955 is because he was graduating from college yeah. um, and he said okay I'm, I'm graduating from med school now I don't have this half hour to, to, to run anymore so you know I'm going to go on with my life as, as, as a neurologist and that's what he did um, ultimately ironically he died from from Parkinson's um, but um, he uh, as did Dave Martin by the way yeah um, they both died from Parkinson's um, but um, but um, it should always be remembered, though, I think, when it comes to him, that that he planned the race, and he studied physiology, and he studied mechanics. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, he, he looked into ways of making himself a more efficient runner. And then, like, on that day, he had two pacers. One of them was a guy named Chris Brasher, mm-hmm. who went on to, to found the London Marathon, you know, who essentially became a running professional. Yes. Um, and then another guy named Chris Chataway. Um, two Chris's were, were, were his pacers. And so it's not as if he, he was just sort of frivolous, frivolously doing it, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, he was an amateur, but he was a serious amateur, and he was bringing thought and intentionality to the process. Um, and so, so yeah, I mean, I'm a huge Roger Bannister fan. Sir Roger Bannister, we should say. Cause he was oh, also, yes. He, he was knighted in 1975. He uh, Good clarification, uh, yeah. Dr. George Darden. That's right, that's right. <laughs> uh, so, so Dr. Roger Bannister was also Sir Roger Bannister. He was knighted in 1975. He actually had a, was in a car wreck that same year uh, where he broke his ankle really severely, and so he never ran again after 1975, the year uh, that he was knighted. Um, but, um, but yeah, he was, he was also a very thoughtful, very intentional runner who trained. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to get back to that, what we were talking about just a while ago, that difference between training and exercises. He wasn't just, oh, I'm just kind of out there doing it. He trained. Yeah. Um, now, some of the ways he trained are a lot different from the ways that we train today. Um, he took the four days off prior to, to the race. <laughs> right. <laughs> he tapered by taking four days off <laughs> um, and, and still was able to, to, to break the four-minute mile there. Uh, still able to run 359.4 on that day on, on May 6th. Um, but, but nonetheless... Um, um, uh, he's still trained. He was still a model of somebody who, who trained intentionally. And I think that's a great clarification because, you know, one thing we talk about with our group with an ITL is this is not necessarily the focus of your day, but when you're running, when you're training, you need to be focused. Mm-hmm. You know, for each, we, I think we've said in the past, every practice has a purpose. Mm-hmm. Every training run, every training cycle or swim has a purpose. Yeah. And he was very much about that and... You know, that sort of certainly should not go um, passed over and, you know, paint as if he was just kind of chasing butterflies in the front yard. Yeah, and, and, and he's proof that you can you can walk and chew gum at the same time. You know, yes. I mean, pe- people, people say, oh, well, you know, I'm really, really focused on my job, so I can't focus so much. You can focus for, mm-hmm. for 30 minutes a day, for 25 minutes a day, for an hour a day, what happens. You, when, when you're in that sport, you can focus on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 that's, I mean, and then you can go back to, to focusing on all the other aspects of your life for the remainder of that time. Um, and so, so I, I think he's, he's, he's proof that that's something that, that, that can possibly be done. Um, the other thing, of course, that, that's always kind of striking about, about Roger Bannister um, is the, the, the importance, and you said this a minute ago, you know, the first on the moon, um, the milestone aspect of the whole thing. You remember we talked, um, or I talked last year about the, the Breaking 2 project, mm-hmm. um, and uh, a bunch of people criticize the Breaking 2 project because they're like, oh, he's getting paced and... and they're using this nutrition, these shoes, and it's on this flat course, and there's a car there, and just like all of these things that made Elliot Kipchoge's run um, 
record ineligible. Um, he wasn't allowed to actually set a record of, with, with one of these runs because of all these various factors that Nike put in place in order to ensure they went under two hours. But they very explicitly said, we're not trying to get the world record with this race. We're trying to do what Roger Bannister did for the mile. We're trying to get somebody under two hours in order to prove that it can be done. And once people demystify it, they'll be good. Um, and, and certainly that was the, the, the case for, for Roger Bannister. His record, his world record, 359.4, lasted for 46 days. Right. Um, it lasted for less than seven weeks. It lasted for less than a month and a half. 46 days. Uh, it, ended up last, it ended up being beaten by a guy named John Landy, who was an, an Australian. And John Landy beat it solidly. Um, John Landy ran, ran 358 um, uh, pretty soon after that. Um, and then Bannister and Landy... And you remember, this is a sort of famous from Lunning lore, uh, at the 1954 Commonwealth Games. So later that summer, uh, Bannister and Landy, Landy was an Australian, um, uh, met at the Commonwealth Games. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like, you know, the battle of the two guys who have gone under four minutes. Who's going to win? Um, and in the last hundred meters, Landy looked over his left shoulder to see if he could spot Bannister behind him. And at that very moment, uh, Bannister passed him on his right. And by the time Landy looked back again, uh, Bannister was two or three strides down the track and ended up beating him. Um, and, uh, and I think ended up setting a world record in that process as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that moment is like this famous moment in, in track and field history. And you can certainly find it on YouTube, and I recommend that you do. Um, yeah, I can imagine if that happened now in the Twitter age. That would be a, a meme <laughs> of all memes. Right. Um, yeah, and it's, it's also worth noting that... so. Uh, it was it's amazing when you read the history of the four minute mile how much it was almost after the war so the war like stopped everything mm-hmm. not just the war but the depression too yeah um so there's almost like a you know a, a period where there's almost no progression mm-hmm. you know no records are being broken in just about any event right and then after the end of the war and folks war, had some world war two you're talking about yes world war two yeah. and then after folks had time to recover. Then you start to see kind of a steady march towards the four-minute mile. And not just the four-minute mile, but if you look at the 1,500-meter times, mm-hmm. there's kind of a paralleled, you know, march right towards, you know, mm-hmm. 350 or 345. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's pretty interesting, A, that he was just the first to do it. You know, Landy was right there, and they were both kind of almost wondering who would be first and trying to schedule runs. Mm-hmm. So they're like, all right, if Roger's running May 1st, I need to make sure I need to run. Right. April twenty eighth, yeah. so that I don't, <laughs> I'm not three days right. behind. Right. Um, but it's interesting to see how it's. You mentioned John Landy. It's interesting to compare Bannister's training to Landy's training, because mm-hmm. Landy was, in a way, is much more intense. So first of all, the fifties mm-hmm. was kind of a period of exploration and running. Yeah. And in and in Emil Zadipak. There you go. One, one, the, the Emil Zadipak crowning moment was was the 1952 Helsinki Games, um, and Roger Bannister was on the 1952 Olympic team and finished fourth in the 1500, um, and and saw what Emil Zadipak had done when he won the 5000, the 10000, and the marathon all in the same Olympics, and he took some of that understanding with him back to England mm-hmm. in, in order to train and continue to improve uh, in preparation for for breaking the four minute mile. So anyway, keep going. Yeah, cause, no, because you're right. Because there wasn't a well of knowledge for runners or coaches to draw right. upon at that point right. in time. Um, the Germans had done some research into interval training in like the 30s, mm-hmm. but other than that, it was a lot of. There's a huge amount of variance in terms of what people were doing. I mean, you know, Bannister was doing kind of high intensity, low volume. 
Zatopek was doing just an insane amount of intervals. <laughs> he was just doing both. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Zatopek says, I'll, I'll, I will see your high intensity and I'll raise you high volume, high repetition, high everything. Right. Um, like a lightning bolt. And then Landy was just kind of just trying to do just about everything. And then you get a little bit later in the 70s, Bill Bowerman was trying to kind of, mm-hmm. you know, um, pull together everything everybody was doing. And do, and do longer and slower stuff. Yeah. Right, which he yeah. pulled from Arthur Lydiard in Australia. Right, right. So it's kind of interesting to see how, as you mentioned, Roger Bannister had to kind of learn, and really the running community in general had to kind of learn how to train. Mm-hmm. And they did it together. Like, Bannister was kind of mocked by the British press after those 52 Olympic Games mm-hmm. um, in a way that we're almost not used to seeing track athletes treated um, at this point in time. And he kind of took that and then ran with it. Yeah. No pun intended. Yeah, the, there, was a, there was an obituary, there was a, a commemoration piece that Malcolm Gladwell, of all people, wrote in The New Yorker. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was him. I, I, I read that one and it was, it was okay. Um, but uh, but I, I think it was in that one where he kind of wandered aloud what would have happened if he hadn't made the 15, or if he would have gone the gold medal in 1952. Right. Like, would he have gone on to then, would, would his fire have been stoked? Would he have then gone on to be? Would he have still brought that same intensity and bearing to to his four minute mile pursuit? Um, maybe not. Another question is: What if you were born twenty years later? Right. Um, because you're. Uh, it would be much much harder to be a med student and run for Bill Bowerman. Yeah. Um, like I can say he yeah. Bowerman cut a man or a boy for literally sweeping the church steps because he said he he wanted him to only have his only job to be running. Right. So you almost wonder, was he almost perfect for that time? You, yeah. you hate to speculate yeah. too much. But, but, I mean, but that's how historic moments take place, though. Right. Right? You have the confluence of all of these things, confluence of people, conditions, all that stuff kind of all coming together. Um, uh, one thing I will say, too, just as far as the floodgates being open, uh, the record now, um, in uh, the record was set in 1999. The world record was now. Uh, it's by a guy named Hisham El Garouche, um, who's almost exactly my age, as a matter of fact, but brilliant runner from Morocco, who I really like a lot. I've always really liked him. Uh, but he ran 343.1 back in 1999. So 343.1, he would have beaten Roger Bannister by more than 100 meters. Um, yeah. so, so Roger Bannister would be coming out of the final curve, toward you know, getting his kick towards home. And Hisham El Garouche be crossing the finish line. <laughs> That's incredible. Um, you know, to, to make, and it is incredible. To make it even more incredible, in 1997 there was a Kenyan runner named Daniel Coleman mm-hmm. uh, who ran a two mile in 758.6. Um, and he's still Daniel Coleman is still the only person ever to do that. Um, there's plenty of people who have run under 810 for two miles, and we're not talking about 3200. We're not talking about 3000. We're talking about a full blown two mile race and that those those distances are so rarely run that it's pretty much only when you have somebody who they think is going to break the record that they actually will pull together an outdoor mile race um and there just hasn't been a whole lot of people since he's El garouge but anyway yeah daniel coleman runs two 359 miles back to back um in a two mile race and runs 758.6 um so yeah just again once that 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 barrier was broken Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the the dam was broken and, and everything cascaded out. Yeah, and it's interesting to look at. So after the, at, at this week, I was kind of looking at back at Bannister's training schedule as as documented by Fred Wilt in a book called How They Train. So starting in December of 1953, Bannister ran five times a week at, during his lunch break. Okay? In 1953, you said Na- December of 1953. Yeah. Okay. And then he broke it in, I think, May of 1954, like May 6th. That could, mm-hmm. could be a couple of days no, off. No, that's right, May 6th. Okay. So 
one of his kind of staple workouts was 10 by 400 at 66 seconds with two-minute rests. Um, and he just kind of gradually sped up the pace until he eventually dropped it down to about 59 seconds. However, if you look at his training log, it'll be one week where he's like, eh, we'll do three-quarters of a mile at this, or we'll just do half a mile and be done with it, like no reps. And you, know, you contrast that now. I mean, I was almost looking at it and thinking, my gosh, our training schedules in college, for me and you, <laughs> yeah. were more intense than this guy's. Yeah, far more intense. And it's just amazing to see the change. Yeah, like two or three months before he broke the world, before he broke the four-minute barrier, he went hiking with one of his buddies. And they, they, and they were gone for like a, like a week, hiking. Yeah, which, right. <laughs> which if you had done that at Tech, yeah. you would have gotten back from that hike. The coach would have been waiting yeah. for you with we like an back. action plan yeah. and like, hey, we're going to have somebody following you. No, and... he wouldn't have done that. He would have thrown my stuff out of the locker room. So, <laughs> so he would ask me to turn in my key. Not the Dr. George Bedard, no way. <laughs> um, so it's just interesting to see how, how things have changed. And then I also want to kind of contrast a little bit with John Landy's training schedule. So Landy was kind of interesting because... He was, he kind of, he was somebody, I guess, Lenny always struck me as the kind of person, if if you asked, hey, where do you want to go to eat? He's going to pick the exact same restaurant and order the exact same meal every single time. Sounds like my kind of guy. Um, so think, <laughs> listen to this. From July 1953 to October 1953, Landy ran 700 reps of 600 yards. 700 reps. This average out of essentially what he did is ten by six hundred meter ten by six hundred yards, excuse me, every night. All right, and the pace that's, was that's, rough. that's next level, dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. So he was not big on on variation, just to say the least. But that also kind of goes to it was a time when they were just exploring, yeah. right? One person says. Well, what the heck? I'll just do the same distance and just increase the speed and see what happens. Right. You had Arthur Lydiard saying, what the heck with speed? Let's just see how long we can run. Right. Um, and they hadn't kind of merged all the different principles yet. Right. Um, but it's interesting. And then you had Bannister who's like, well, when I get out of class, I'll subtract the time of when my next class starts, and that'll be how I figure out right. um, how far I go. And then, you know, there, of course, is the iconic picture of him yeah. crossing the finish line. Yeah. Um, it's on the cover of the book that, uh, that, that Patrick was holding up a few minutes ago. It's, it's the cover of the book. It's one of the more <laughs> iconic uh, photos in running. Yeah. You could say he's making kind of a, a face of blissful suffering or yeah. most pleasant exhaustion, if you will. Right on. Um, so it's definitely one of the kind of iconic photos. If, if you're looking for a poster to have in your wall, you know, if, in your running one. fan, that would be the one. It's a good one. And if you're looking to, uh, to put a quotation from Roger Bannister below that, um, I would offer this one. He said, quote, don't think about the wretchedness of racing poorly. Think about the beauty of competing well. Rest in peace, Sir Roger Bannister and Dr. Dave Martin. And another episode of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance is in the books. We appreciate your listening. You can follow us on Twitter at Pleasant Podcast, uh, on the blog at mostpleasantexhaustion.blogspot.com, or check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. Uh, drop us a line. Let us know uh, if Dave Martin influenced you, if Roger Bannister influenced you. 
Um, tell us about what you think about Atlanta's chances of getting the 2020 Olympic marathon trials or whether you think that you need to be eating for a better brain. Check out ITL Coaching at itlcoaching.com, at itlcoaching uh, on Twitter, and at Facebook at facebook.com slash performance. Finally, check out my wife, The Travel Planner, facebook.com slash MEV. She posted lots of pictures of our trip to Disney World and Savannah this past week, uh, and so check those out. CaseyTravelPlanner at gmail.com, K-A-C-I-E, TravelPlanner at gmail.com, and of course, CaseyTravelPlanner.com, her website. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. Thanks again for joining us on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. We'll see you next week.